Welcome to POP, the sermon podcast for Peace Lutheran Church in Gehenna, with Pastors Doug Warburton and Tony Katko. We continue our series on Matthew 25, looking at the second of these three parables in this chapter. So Jesus says these words. For it is as if a man going on a journey summoned his slaves and entrusted his property to them. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability. Then he went away. At once the one who had received the five talents went off and traded with them and made five more talents. In the same way, the one who had the two talents made two more talents. But the one who had received the one talent went off and dug a hole in the ground and hid his master's money. After a long time, the master of those slaves came and settled accounts with them. Then the one who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five more talents, saying, Master, you handed over to me five talents. See, I have made five more talents. His master said to him, Well done, good and trustworthy slave. You have been trustworthy in a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. And the one with the two talents also came forward, saying, Master, you handed over to me two talents. See, I have made two more talents. His master said to him, Well done, good and trustworthy slave. You have been trustworthy in a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. Then the one who had received the one talent also came forward, saying, Master, I knew that you were a harsh man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you did not scatter. So I was afraid, and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here, you have what is yours. But his master replied, You wicked and lazy slave! You knew, did you, that I reap where I did not sow and gather where I did not scatter? Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers, and on my return I would have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to the one with the ten talents. For to all who have, more will be given, and they will have an abundance. But from those who have nothing, even what they have will be taken away. As for this worthless slave, throw him into the outer darkness, where there will be weeping and gnashing teeth. So that's kind of hard. So I'm going to talk about a different parable, and then we'll come back to that one. We'll get to it eventually. All right, so there's this other parable, this story from the Talmud. It's this ancient Jewish story about interpreting Scripture. And the story goes that there are these four rabbis that were summoned by a baker. See, the baker had some debate going on whether his uh, oven had been, become ritually impure or not. And so he had these rabbis come and figure out, according to their interpretation of Torah, of the Scripture, whether it was okay to use his oven. Now, three of the rabbis were in agreement, but the fourth rabbi, Rabbi Eleazar, he saw it differently. And he gave all these really smart, thought-out, impassioned arguments using all these different pieces of Scripture, but still the other three rabbis were not convinced. They thought it went this way, and he thought it went this way. And so Rabbi Eleazar said, okay, I'm going to try something different. If my interpretation of Scripture is correct, then this tree will show you. And sure enough, this nearby tree uprooted itself and started to lift itself up in the air. But the other three rabbis were not impressed. They said, this does not prove your point. What does a tree have to do with interpreting Scripture? And so Rabbi Eliezer said, all right, what about this? 
If my interpretation of the Torah is correct, then this stream will show you. And at his words, this nearby stream that was flowing this way, it stopped and started to flow back the other way. But again, the other rabbis said, this has nothing to do with our arguments. This doesn't change anything. What does the stream have to do with interpreting scriptures? So Eleazar said, all right, what about this? And he pointed to a nearby building where they studied the holy scriptures. He said, if my interpretation of scripture is correct, then the very walls of our holy building will show you. And one of the walls started to collapse in on itself. But one of the other rabbis scolded the wall and said, wall, you have nothing to do with this argument. Stop. And so it stopped midway and stayed at a slant. So at this point, Eliezer was really frustrated. It's like, what more do you want? How about this? If my interpretation of Scripture is correct, then the very heavens will show you. And sure enough, this voice, booming voice, came out of the heavens and said, Stop arguing with Rabbi Eleazar. He is always right. And he is right now, too. Leave it be. But one of the other three rabbis said, So, the voice from heaven agrees with you. That's still two against three. And the teachings of Scripture say that in matters of justice, a majority will decide. So we stand by our position. And at that moment, God smiled and said, My children, you have done well. Now, I love this story. I know it seems a little strange, but it shows us something important about God's Word. Because I think a lot of people come, and they come to pastors or church, and they're like, all right, tell me the right answer. Give me the one definitive right answer of exactly what the Bible means. And it doesn't work like that. There are some things that are clearer than others, but no, a lot of the time, sorry, there isn't just one definitive for all time right answer of what this means. It's more like God's word is this living text. It comes alive as we continue to struggle with what it means together. And you know, Jesus said something about this. He said, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. That was a phrase that they used about binding and loosing the law. So whatever times you think this needs to be restricted and tightened this interpretation, and then sometimes, well, you need to loosen and open this up. Jesus says, good, do that, and heaven's got your back. Part of the beauty of Scripture is that it can mean many different things. We're meant to struggle through, especially these difficult stories together. So last week, it was kind of a difficult parable. This week is another challenging parable. So as I was looking into this, I went through a lot of different research rabbit holes, and I found there are all sorts of really interesting interpretations, a lot of creativity, a lot of scholars really digging deep in to try and find some hidden meaning here. So I'm going to share with you what resonated with me this time, and maybe next time it'll be different. And maybe you have come across some very different views on this, and those are helpful. That's great. That's how it's supposed to be. So let's jump in. In Matthew, we call this the parable of the talents. And talents, you can figure out, even if you didn't know, that, okay, it's some kind of money. It's actually technically a weight, and so it's how you would weigh precious metals. So we think a talent somewhere around 80 pounds, 80 pounds of gold or silver. So that's a lot of money. Scholars estimate it's somewhere around 20 years of the annual wage for an average worker. So even the one 
they get five and two and one. Even the one who only has one, that's well over a million dollars today, right? That's a lot of money. The one with five, that's a hundred years wages. It's a ridiculous amount of money. So we're told that this master is, goes on this journey and gives all this money, this huge amount of resources to these three trusted servants. And we're also told he's gone for a long time. So the idea is they have plenty of time to figure out something to do with this extravagant 80 pounds of gold that they've been given. And then the first two do a pretty good job, right? They double the money. The one with five makes five more. The one with two makes two more. And the master praises them. Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. This is great. And then there's the third one, a little different. Let's look again at what he says. Master, I knew that you were a harsh man, reaping where you did not sow, gathering where you did not scatter, so I was afraid. And I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here, have what is yours. And then the master is pretty harsh in what he responds, isn't he? You wicked and lazy slave. You knew that I reap where I did not sow and gather where I did not scatter. Well, then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers and on my return I would have had received what was my own with interest. And then he takes away that talent and he leaves that last servant out into the outer darkness where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. And that gnashing of teeth, just picture it like your teeth chattering when it's cold. So it's like you're out all alone in the cold. And that's how this ends. So what do we do with that? I mean, on the one hand, actually, it's pretty straightforward. There is an easy message here. Use the gifts that God has given you. God is our master. God has given us these great extravagant gifts in life. And for our life, obviously, it's not just money, right? We talk about time, talent, and treasure in the church. You're given all this time with the freedom to figure out how to use it in your life. You're given abilities and skills, and you're given resources. Be good stewards of it. Live your life well. Now, that is a good message of being good stewards. And if that's all you get out of the story, well, that's great. But if you're like me, you might have some other lingering questions. Like, well, if the master in the story is supposed to be Jesus, then why does he seem like such a jerk? Why is the master in the story, it's all judgment and no grace. There's no forgiveness in here. I mean, what, that just doesn't fit with what we think about when we think about Jesus? Is Jesus telling us, hey, make profits for me or else? Is that really the message? And then we go back to even the setup of the story. The master is a slave owner, and he expects these slaves to make these big profits that will just be handed over to him. I mean, that doesn't really fit with how we normally see God in the Bible. And some scholars have pointed out that it gets worse as you think more about the economic system of the day. Because at this time, in this kind of agricultural system, it was basically a closed economic system. So if you were going to make more money, it means you had to take it away from somewhere else. And the way that these wealthy landowners made more money was exploiting those workers. And so the few nobles, they would make these loans to the peasants so that they could afford their farm, these peasants who are already really highly overly taxed by the Romans. So a noble like our master in the story, 
They controlled the market so they could set the interest rates as high as they wanted. So scholars estimate it was probably these crop loans were anywhere from 60% interest to 200% interest. It's a crazy amount, right? Not fair, not good business practices, but they could do what they want. That's how they doubled their money. Except that's not the best part. They didn't really count on just making money from the interest. What they wanted were those years where the crops didn't do so well, and then the farmers had to default on their loans and give up their land. So then this land that had belonged to these farming families for generations, suddenly it was handed over to the few wealthy people in the area who would do what? They would hire back those same people who used to own the land to farm it for next to nothing while the rich continued to get richer. Right? It was kind of an ugly system. So some scholars have said, maybe, maybe we need to Jesus is getting into this economic injustice and we should just flip the story around. Maybe this isn't actually about the kingdom of God at all. Maybe the master is like the corrupt powers in this world. Now, if you read it that way, that interpretation, well, then the third servant becomes the Christ figure because he refuses to play along. He says, I'm not gonna extort my neighbors and take away their land to make some profit for you. And then what happens? He's thrown into the outer darkness, which could be a way of talking about the cross. So it kind of fits, and I like that interpretation, but I don't know that it's the only way to read this story. Because I kind of think that, well, maybe this isn't about the economic injustice of the day. Maybe that's just a familiar scenario of the landowner and the servants that Jesus' audience could understand. So let's assume that's the case. Let's say that the master is God then what's the real problem here? The real problem is how that last servant sees the master. It's what he thinks of him. I mean, and we hear exactly what he thinks of him. This last servant thinks that the master is an awful person, a harsh master who doesn't forgive easily, who judges quickly. This is a, a master who doesn't care about the servants, doesn't love them at all. He just wants to make a profit off of them. And that's the opposite of what Jesus shows us about God. That's the opposite of what the Old Testament shows us too. I mean, the most common refrain about God's character in the Old Testament is this refrain that the Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. And so if we believe in the scriptures, then that harsh master is not really what God is like. And notice that the first two servants don't seem to really see him like that. The first two just take these extravagant gifts and they use them as best they can and then what does the master do? This is great! Welcomes them into his joy. But the last servant is starting from this place of fear. He thinks that God's world is an awful place and you just gotta take what you've got and you've gotta hide it from the world around you. And that's what he does. He literally buries his gift in the ground so that it can't be taken and it can't be used because surely it would never be used for anything good in this awful world. And then what happens at the end, him being thrown out into the cold, I tend to think of that as just the self-fulfilling prophecy. When you act like God is cruel and out to get you, when you act like the world is an awful place and that's what you believe, 
then you will experience the world as an awful place. It makes me think of how sometimes people talk about politics today. Now, let's be real here. We all wish that U.S. politics could be more civil and could get some more stuff done. We all wish that. But I have heard from people, liberals and conservatives, say that basically, yeah, our system is too far gone. It is beyond reforming. Right? You can't trust anybody. You can't trust any systems. Everybody's out for their own power. You might as well tear it down and start over. And then because we think everyone is just out for themselves, well, we've got to hold on to what's ours and hide it, maybe even bury it in the ground. Now, the irony of this defeatist attitude of the world is that it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. Because when enough people stop believing that democracy can work, then democracy no longer works. It's like our view of the world over time starts to shape what the world actually is. And our view of God, it doesn't change what God is, but it does change how we live out our faith. It does change how we experience God. So if you think that God put us here in this life to suffer through a terrible life, and then at some point you'll go to heaven and that'll be nice, then that is how you will experience life. Life is a whole lot better when you think of it as a gift. And yeah, this world isn't perfect, we all know that, but this world is still God's world and God hasn't given up on it. God hasn't given up on us. We don't have this vengeful, wrathful God who you have to be afraid of in life. We have a God who loves us. We have a God who wants us to enjoy this life and wants us to take the gifts that we have all been given and do something with them to make this world a better place. 